I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Thank you. Tis the season uh, for nonprofits to, to mention uh, the other parts of raising money, which uh, those of you that are members uh, in the audience, which is a lot of you, yes? Nice. Uh, thank you. You make up about half of our general operating budget, and the other half comes in the form of donations, and it comes between now and the end of the year. Um, so those of you that are able to make donations, um, that is what keeps everything moving at Long Now and enables some of the amazing projects as well as the seminar series. And so we really thank you for that and uh, thank you for all your support over the last 20 years. Thank you. DARPA is something I've been revering, admiring, paying attention to since 1972 when I first learned how important what was called ARPA then was the, to the development of computer capabilities and to indeed the ARPANET and to so much else. And at that same time, that was when I was paying attention to Buckminster Fuller who said when you want to manage change in civilization, uh, trying to change human nature is a big waste of time. It doesn't change much. But a point of high leverage is tools and the design of tools and the framing of the design of tools. And this is where DARPA, I think, has been especially valuable. Uh, governments can do regulations, governments can do agreements, governments can do various things. But that the government would so adroitly push ahead the most blue sky and sophisticated approach to tool invention and innovation has been at the core of a pretty good society we've got going, I think. And now that we're entering what is being called a biological century, a biotech century, and uh, genome editing is becoming another form of programming, DARPA is right in the thick, and the person who is in the thick of that is our speaker tonight, Renee Wigerson. Good evening. Thank you, everyone, for having me. I want to thank Stuart and the Long Now Foundation for inviting me. Um, when Stuart asked me to give a talk on engineer gene safety, uh, it was a surprise. I didn't really think about coming to the West Coast to talk about what we're doing back in DC um, about safety. But really through conversations with Stuart, I came to realize that we share this enthusiasm for gene editing and how this can really have an impact on all of our lives across many different scales. From the scale of the laboratory benchtop, maybe at a university like MIT where there's sophisticated researchers working together, to a benchtop that could be my kitchen or my garage, these tools are being democratized. How do we think of safety? in those different types of settings, to whole ecosystems, to personalized medicine in an individual. Um, I really started to feel this sense of urgency that somebody needed to do something about this and think about, you know, hey, who has the plan for developing the tools that we can move forward safely? 
at the time that I started to think about this, I was an advisor to all of the ARPAs, <laughs> to DARPA, IARPA, which is the intelligence community version of the Defense Advanced Project Agency, of ARPA-E, this is the energy variation of DARPA, and they all were working on synthetic biology tools to forward their individual missions. And I started to talk to the program managers that I was working with, like, hey, do you think we can put a little bit of money aside and think about safety in the context of these projects? And um, was told that was a really good idea, but we have limited budgets. We don't really need to <laughs> include that from the beginning. So I took it upon myself to go to the director of DARPA and say, hey, look, we're pushing these technologies out there into the world, really, and we're not accompanying them with the safety measures that, that, that should be in place. And um, the director at the time, Arthur Prabhakar, said, well, what are you going to do about it? And so I, I laid out a plan to um, establish a path forward that I'll share with you today. Um, it's open for feedback. That's why I really like talking about this project, getting new ideas of, of how we can see where our blind spots are and, and try to fill those in. Um, you know, I, I like the idea of the Long Now Foundation, thinking about where the direction of a technology may go. And part of my job is thinking, where could something possibly go wrong? And, and what does this technology look like five years from now, 10 years from now? And having done many of these types of, of activities, even starting five, six years ago, I'll tell you, I completely missed CRISPR-Cas9. That's really what changed everything. Some of the, the projections, it's almost embarrassing to look back at, at what we were saying, what biology would be doing today, because we're, we're really achieving science fiction level type activities. And I'll talk a little bit about um, what those surprises look like going forward. Um, and if you'll just humor me for a moment, I'd like to tell you about the agency itself. This year is our 60th birthday. And DARPA itself was launched in response to a launch. This was the launch of Sputnik 1, uh, launched by the Soviet Union in late 1957. And this was really not only a demonstration of incredible technological prowess, but also of military dominance. Now, here's a satellite that went into orbit and is now circling the Earth and passing over the United States several times a day, um, where the Soviet Union can have a look on what's happening in the US. President Eisenhower, at the time, um, put out this memo shortly thereafter to say we need to establish an agency, the DARPA, to have the singular mission of creating breakthrough technologies for national security. We can't let this happen again. We have to be the first and we have to be the best moving forward to keep our military dominance. And so there's many technologies that DARPA has developed throughout the years. Um, this would be a talk that could take days if we went through them. We heard about ceramics earlier, ceramic bearings. But here's a few other technologies that you may be familiar with. So for the Apollo missions, DARPA was a critical early investor in the technologies that enabled the booster rockets to get to space. In the middle here, we have the ARPANET. And this was a, a really a napkin drawing of uh, the four original nodes. If, it's kind of blurry, but if you, if you look, you can see at the bottom circle is UCLA, which goes straight up to SRI. And last night at 10.30 PM was the 48th anniversary of that first time that signal traveled 350 miles, um, so the first internet signal. The program manager at the time, Licklider, who brought this, this really this vision of this program forward, he also thought about things like cloud computing. And we're at an age now where 140 characters reaches the ends of the earth within seconds, also with national security implications. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Moving beyond that, uh, <laughs> this is the picture of the, the car in the top right corner is Stanley. This is the, the winner of the Urban Challenge. So precision guide us, autonomous guidance. And then finally, really the birth of some of the biological technologies at DARPA. Our flagship programs include revolutionizing prosthetics. We're now closing the loop where a, a man and machine can be integrated together, in this case, Neuronal signals travel from the brain to a hand to actuate a movement, in this case, pick up a grape, um, but also have haptic sensation programmed inside that prosthetic to sense how, how tight you're squeezing that grape so you don't crush it, and that signal is relayed back um, to the user. Really incredible neurotechnologies. We're trying to outpace infectious disease, and where I sit is sort of at the um, interface between outpacing infectious disease and accelerating synthetic biology. So the, the diversity of the programs at any moment at DARPA is really a reflection of the program managers. It's an interesting organization where it's not top-down. Our director doesn't tell us what projects we should work on. We come with our idea to the director and say, I want to be a program manager because I believe in this vision and I want to make it happen. We're there for only two to five years. It's a very short tenure with the idea, any one individual only has so many good ideas, and then we cycle out and, and new folks come in. Um, so if you look at the DARPA website, really um, the, the array of programs we have are from that program management level. And so how do we make this happen? With this incredible sense of urgency, we walk in the door. Um, we really have a very basic way of how we think about projects, and this is useful I think in, in you know, well beyond DARPA, I'm going to use this after I leave DARPA, the Heilmeier Catechism. So Heilmeier used to be a director of DARPA, and he laid out, if you can't answer these eight questions, then it's really not a project worth pursuing. It's what are you trying to do, articulate it without any jargon. What's important here is that, you know, for example, the director of DARPA, he is a hypersonics expert. He has no idea what I'm talking about when we talk about gene editing, so I have to be able to relay you know, this is a critical, urgent issue for national security, and, and here's why we need to address it. How is it done today? How are we going to change the state of the art? And who's going to care if we're successful? What difference will it make? Um, what are the risks? These are not only technical risks, we must address those up front, but what are the ethical risks? What are the financial risks that we'll address? How much will it cost? How long will it take? And the way that we relate the urgency down to the folks that we provide funds to is what are the midterm and final exams to check for success. Every project that we fund is, um, we have six month, one year, two year milestones that must be met. If they're not met, then we stop funding and we focus our resources elsewhere to other teams that may be making better progress. I think that's an important point to point out. DARPA does not have these Fabulous shiny labs. We are an office building. We are people <laughs> sitting behind a desk um, delegating funds out to people. We, we have a vision of what we want to make happen, and we look for the people to, to help us do that. And it's my understanding there's actually several people that I fund on programs here um, in the audience today. So I know you, you feel some of this urgency and pain. <laughs> um, and so really, through the answering of these eight Heilmeier criteria, we seek to create and prevent that technological surprise. So if we, if we think of genetic engineering and genome editing, what, what do the seeds of surprise look like? For people working in the field of genetics, these will be familiar images to you. Developing the tools to read and write DNA. So we've gone from the low price of a human genome for $3 billion, which is the entire DARPA budget, down to about $1,000 in one day to sequence a genome. Illumina and others are pursuing that $100 genome going forward. 
The ability to write DNA is also dramatically decreasing in price. And of course, the tools to edit genomes. So we've had tools to edit genomes for quite a while, but CRISPR-Cas9 gives us the ability to do so in a programmable way, really with just these two components, where you have an enzyme that can, can bind to the DNA using a guide sequence that says, hey, this is, the, this is your cellular GPS that tells you where you need to go inside the cell. Make your cut here, make your edit here. DARPA investment was critical under each one of these technologies to bring these forward. And we are also critical in bringing many of these out and democratizing them by making the hardware to make DNA synthesis and sequencing and even editing um, out to the masses. Here we have the MinION sequencer. This is about the size of an iPhone, um, USB powered. The DNA write, this is the digital to biological converter. It's not quite at a price point where you can have it at home, but certainly at your research lab. And the idea here is to take genetic information from a computer and have a biopolymer printed out, whether it's DNA, RNA, or polypeptide, really bringing this, if it's in the laboratory setting, we're taking it out of a centralized component where we used to have some regulatory oversight. There is guidance for the providers of double-stranded DNA that they look at every order that's presented, and, and you can look and say, mm, actually, this is Ebola sequence. You want to do that next level of checking to see who's ordering this, are they allowed to be ordering this, um, is there something suspicious here? Um, there's, there's not formal regulation, it's really a guidance. About 80% of the double-stranded DNA providers um, adhere to this guidance and say, okay, we'll be good citizens, we'll make sure that people are ordering things that they should be, and um, if not, they'll flag it for the FBI for, for further follow-up. Moving this technology um, outside of that centralized setting, I think is empowering. We can actually bring innovation to um, more amateur users. There could be things that we wouldn't otherwise get from the, maybe the group think of a, of a university setting. Um, but of course, this, this increases some national security risks in these components. Um, and then finally, genome editing. In this, this example here, this is um, a kit that's advertised on the internet. Actually, I, th I think it's, it's developed here in the Bay Area, where the audience is, is really focused on DIY communities, so do-it-yourself biologists. Um, but there's many sources of, that you can get, CRISPR-Cas9, AdGene, and, and, and others. So these key enablers are really pushing this technology out there. I hope you're starting to think about safety <laughs> and why, why we might need that. So um, it, it just a, a little bit of background on genome editing. I think this is helpful for those that, that aren't really working on these tools every day. Um, so this is a naturally occurring system. Um, you would not believe how many billions of copies of this are in this room right now. They're part of our microbiomes and, and, and our microbes. If you imagine the market cap on this and, and how much you're worth, um, it's, it's really kind of fun to, to think about and do that math. Um, but, but the way these systems develop, are, it's, it's a way for bacteria to have an immune system. So they don't have antibodies and white blood cells to help them defend against infection. But what they do have is, is CRISPR-Cas systems. So a, a virus here, this, this little guy in the, the top corner, inserts his DNA into the bacteria to attack it. And that bacteria can cut up that viral DNA, make a copy of it, and insert that almost in a, a, like a library into its own genome as a memory of that infection so that its offspring, um, the next time they're infected with a virus, it'll say, okay, I have a copy of this virus, I've seen it before, I'm gonna cut it up and neutralize it. So this is, this is a defense. And what was the big, really, innovation about five years ago, Jennifer Doudna, Feng Zhang, and others, 
recognize that instead of using this viral DNA, what you could do is program any piece of DNA that you want as a guide to take this editor to a place that you'd like to in the genome. And using editing parlance, you could delete a gene or you can copy-paste and insert a new gene. So this is an incredibly powerful technology. So let's start to think about what does the surprise look like? What's the Sputnik of this type of work? So thinking of a bacterial system, what could we maybe program in mass into a bacteria? Enter George Church. And of course, he has taken every single picture in this moving image and mapped a genome sequence to it, uploaded that sequence in the rapid upload time of about three days into a bacteria. Um, and this is, this is on a loop. It's a very short segment, but each and every one of those pixels um, has been programmed into a DNA, and the, your readout from that system is, is sequencing that bacteria. So this is starting to show you what these technologies may enable one day. Is it DNA data storage? Well, the, the price of synthesis isn't yet at a price point that this is realistic in the next year or two, but maybe in the next 10 or 20 years it is realistic. There's a window of opportunity here that we can start to build in encryption systems, ways that we can start to, to protect this information if we want to, as a nation, use these technologies. Beyond that, it turns out that CRISPR-Cas9 is almost like a one-size-fits-all editor. So the rule as of about five years ago was if you wanted to work with a model organism, you could work with yeast and E. coli. There's great genome engineering tools. But to use another species, you'd have to create an entirely new toolkit. This was going to be millions of dollars of development. And I, I don't think CRISPR-Cas has met an organism yet that it can't edit. So um, from salamanders to pigs to rodents to bacteria, um, I, I'd love to, at the, in the Q&A, if some of an organism, let me know. <laughs> um, but, but so when you start to think about what we can edit now, we can think of editing these things as systems, as maybe entire ecosystems. Maybe creating new ecosystems of the future or reviving ecosystems from the past, learning from them. Um, there's folks in this room <laughs> that are interested in, in de-extinction, bringing back things like the woolly mammoth, um, out of the context of their original ecosystem. Maybe it makes sense to not only bring back the woolly mammoth, but the plant life that that woolly mammoth may have enjoyed. Um, passenger pigeon, I know, is also of interest. This second image here is of an of a otherwise extinct plant, um, an image from the Harvard University Herbarium. So a creative director at a metabolic um, engineering company called Ginkgo Bioworks is, is looking at extinct species of plants um, in Harvard's collection to see are there new enzymes and pathways that they can, they can get from these extinct organisms that they can bring into the laboratory and start to generate molecules that are of value. And DARPA has um, tremendous funding on the Living Foundries program through companies like Zymergen and Amaris and the MIT Broad Institute to do just that. We've given them the task of generating 1,000 completely unique molecules that have not been made by biology before um, as, as their, their milestone and, and criteria going forward. So thinking about de-extinction, there is a time sometimes as a society that we decide to eliminate something from our environment. Um, smallpox is one example of something that, that we have eliminated because of the incredible suffering and, and death that that brought to individuals. Countries still maintain stockpiles for, for fear of resurgence. And you may have heard recently that Canadian researchers actually reconstituted an extinct pox virus. 
In this case, it was a horsepox virus, um, which had also been eradicated as an agricultural pest. It had not been detected anywhere in the wild since the 1980s. And so as a society, collectively, we have eradicated these, these species of virus, and the one individual or small group of individuals has made the decision to, to bring that pox virus back. So I, I, I want to emphasize that the power of small groups of individuals here using these technologies is, is immense, and it's important that we get the word out thinking about, you know, I'm not sure if somebody said in this context, what could possibly go wrong if we bring back a horsepox virus? And, it, you know, it's funny, but it's not funny. <laughs> um, you know, how do we address this going forward? And, I, 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 you know, again, emphasizing, thinking about the power of one, genome editors can be applied to even bias the outcomes of inheritance in something that's called a gene drive. What a gene drive does is it couples a trait of interest with a genome editor. In this case, if you want to suppress something like a mosquito that's a carrier of, of vector-borne diseases like malaria or, or dengue, you can couple a trait that, say, that makes a mosquito resistant to, to malaria um, with CRISPR-Cas. And so through reproduction, it makes a copy of itself um, into the, the sister chromosome, so where mom and dad each would have a different copy now, Dad's copy gets copied into mom's copy, and, and there's 100% there's inheritance of your trait of interest. So for something like vector-borne disease, you may want to use a tool like this, and people have heralded, okay, we now have the technology to destroy all Zika mosquitoes, or name your favorite vector-borne disease. Um, but at the same time, we have now created for the first time a tool that can lead to extinction. So under what circumstances do we decide to use this tool and understand, you know, how this might work in the environment. Um, and, you know, is there a way to do this in a, in a measured way that we maybe can do a local extinction and, and not a global extinction? These were some of the questions that I brought to the community to ask, you know, how can we move forward safely in this world? Um, and then finally, of course, uh, human uses of these technologies. There's a lot of people are afraid to use the, the C word, the cure word for cancers here, but... Um, it really looks like an application of these technologies through um, some T-cell therapies and otherwise can reverse cancer even at very late stages. Industry that makes transgenic organisms for research tools um, use these same exact reagents to cause disease in animals. So where we, for those of you that worked in, in a mouse house in your graduate research, you may remember you know, years sometimes of making a transgenic mouse to do your studies, um, and that's just when you can start to then look at your drug of interest, et cetera. So CRISPR-Cas9 has made this a very precise way to introduce mutations. Um, any, as new diseases emerge, it's, it's relatively straightforward to, to put this in the mouse. And I don't think you need to be a biosecurity expert to recognize that there is a need for scrutiny um, when you look at a tool that can both cure and cause the and cause a disease. And Enter industry, if there's um, <laughs> human therapeutics that are at play, there's gonna be a number of companies popping up to, um, to make the most of that technology. Um, I, I could name any number of companies, here's just a, a handful together. Their uh, market cap is, is you know, uh, billions of dollars and growing. And what does safety, when we think about biotechnology and, and becoming a part of the bioeconomy, where does safety play a role here? And I'd like to just point out that many of these companies were built on the original prototypes of CRISPR-Cas9 um, to the promise that, okay, we can make these editors better and more precise. So 
when we talk about precision genome editing, I, I want to make it clear that these tools, all they do is CRISPR and the guide RNA come to the DNA and they make a cut and that is it. They don't edit anything. They hand it over to the cell at that point and the cell has um, DNA repair processes called non-homologous end joining or um, homology-directed repair, and they make the edit. So delete or copy-paste, and I think you can hardly see it in this diagram, but there's a little green bar on one of the chromosomes, which is your on-target edit, and the red bars are off-target edits. So these tools, they're actually precision DNA damagers. This is another guide, same tool, where I think you can start to see the red coming up in this image, where often your off-target effect may outweigh your on-target effect. So how do we make these editors better so that um, we can start to direct the outcomes of repair to, to get the, the true edits that we want? There was a study published using these tools um, that it was kind of a, a very quickly published piece of work that said, hey, if you use these tools in mammalian systems, um, they cause hundreds of off-target effects. In that one day that this paper was published, there was um, $175 million loss in market cap from these companies. Um, very quickly, uh, the, the, the companies and academia came to say, actually, if you look at the experimental design, it's probably overestimated the actual numbers of off-target effects. Um, but, but still, the, the ability of, of an issue like safety to move a market like this, if, if the existential concern doesn't get you, then maybe, maybe the financial one will. Um, so, and then people are taking this into their own hands. Folks that can't wait for the long timelines of, of an FDA approval. Maybe you have an inherited genetic disease and, and your clock is ticking. What can you do? And uh, this is really, a, I think, a nice image from MIT Technology Review about an individual, in this case, who um, really well-educated looked and um, he didn't have a disease per se, but he wanted to look at a way to increase his stamina and, and longevity. So he looked up the sequence for human uh, growth hormone, releasing hormone. He ordered uh, a plasmid, that's what this, this circular piece of DNA is, um, that encoded this protein, this gene. It was delivered to him. He found a doctor who injected him. Um, first, they did a tattoo, so you can see where he injected it. So if anything went wrong, you'd know where to cut out. And, uh, <laughs> and he injected himself there. But wh what's important to know is that um, when you inject yourself with circular DNA, it doesn't just get taken up into cells. You actually have to apply an electrical current to make sure that it gets in. So um, this doctor also applied an electrical shock to make sure that this was taken up. And um, I guess he's fine. I don't know <laughs> what's, uh, what's happening, but, but I, I think that the real emphasis is, is, this is this is one story of many that are, are starting to accumulate, that um, people are taking this into their, their own hands. If they, if they can't wait for a therapy, they're going to try to make these therapies themselves. Um, this individual argues that you know this is not um, this does not pose any any harm to the public, so it's it's fine to do. Um, but I, I guess if I had the opportunity to talk to that individual, I'd ask, well, you know, have you talked to your insurance company about this? Um, if something bad should happen, what does this do to the industry as a whole? We're trying to develop beneficent genome editing technologies, and if something goes wrong, um, what if it's misinterpreted as as this this field? Um, being a problem, and of, of course we know uh, the case with AAV therapies where um, we, we for a very long time stopped doing gene therapies because of an adverse event. And um, we thought that genome editing was on the horizon, it's already here. Um, researchers in the U.S. and globally are, are editing um, in the germline. 
So the Washington Post, I think, sums this up really well, saying new genome editing tools could cure disease or customize kids or aid bioterrorism. You pick. Um, and uh, what I'm looking at at DARPA is thinking about, okay, I'm starting to get really worried about bio-error. So this would be somebody, a well-intending individual, maybe the gentleman that's, that's doing self-DIY um, therapies, um, causing an, an event that we had not anticipated. How do we mitigate that risk? What about releasing a mosquito, a gene-drive mosquito, into the environment? It creates a, a new ecological niche that gets filled by an even um, more deadly virus-carrying insect. How do we mitigate that risk of bio-error? And then I'll be checking the box for national security, and while I develop the tools to protect against bio-error, we'll be, we'll be, that same toolkit can be applied really to bio-terror. They, they, they end with the same result. There's some lessons that I think we can learn going back to, to the ARPANET and the 48th anniversary. Um, no criticism of the folks that, that, that brought the internet to us, but if, um, if they had the opportunity to, to look back and say, could we have developed um, security of those systems from the onset, we're, we wouldn't be worried about maybe cybersecurity as much as we are now. There's entire floors at DARPA dedicated to this. The NSA is, is dedicated to this. Would we be in a better position if we had built in safety from the beginning? So with this in mind, I, I went to the community and I said, if we want to use genome editing technologies, what are ways that we can control these editors, counter them if they should go rogue, and if they should introduce an edit into an environment or an organism that we didn't want to be there, how could we remediate that change and bring it back to baseline? And so that formed the basis for a program that I call Safe Genes, and the call went to proposers to, to address just these things. The first, the control of genome editing. This is turning an editor on where you want them, when you want them, and once they're done doing their job, converting its substrate, remove them from the system. It's when they hang around in cells after they've turned over their substrate that they start to accumulate those off-target effects. If we're going into the clinic with a gene editor, we don't have any antidote. We don't have any way to shut those systems down. If you think about taking a medicine that you may have a side effect from, um, if there is a side effect, you can stop taking that medicine, your body metabolizes it, and you'll go back to baseline. If something is permanently changing your genome and something goes wrong, you really want to have something at the ready with you to, to be able to shut down that editor to halt further, further damage. And if there is any damage um, inferred, then we can also try to remediate that damage. And the teams that we funded, we picked seven teams. I'll go into um, the, the teams that, that answer the call to this, but just to give you a flavor of the, the different types of efforts that we're funding, we're about six months in, and we have folks looking at controllable genome editors. This is having a genome editor work only when you add a small molecule of interest. We have generation counters, so they're, they're not quite at the level of a 1,000 or 10,000-year clock, but they can count um, that they've gone through five generations, stop the gene drive. Ten generations, stop the gene drive. So these are, these are smart systems. If we build these autonomous systems that we release into the wild, we want to build in fail-safes for our cars that are autonomous. Let's build them for our, our gene drives that are also trying to be autonomous. For countermeasures and prophylaxis, we have a broad swath of technologies we're funding now, from nucleic acids to small molecule inhibitors to protein inhibitors. Um, interestingly, most of these protein inhibitors comes from the phage themselves that were initially trying to infect those bacteria. Of course, they've evolved resistances. So nature is going to, to combat and counter these gene editors. And then finally, genetic remediation. 
um, this is an area that I would, I would love to solicit new ideas in. So it's, it's very difficult to keep pace with something like a gene drive. So something that biases inheritance to 100%. Um, I can't tell you how many um, ideas that we got from individuals that, say, that said, okay, if you release a gene drive, let's create a reversal drive to reverse that same gene drive. Well, from a regulatory perspective, talking with the FDA, they kind of scratched their heads and said, okay, so you send out the first gene drive and it breaks, and then you want me to let you release the second one to fix it? Um, so, it, of course, that, that won't work in the long run. Um, so we, we, I think this is one area that we really need to, to think about. How, how can we develop technologies to keep pace with remediation and gene drives? And then finally, much of this work to date really has just been computer models. What could happen if we release a gene drive? What could happen if we use this therapeutically? And, and we're starting to actually do this testing in laboratory systems over many generations um, to see what are, the, what are the impacts of evolution? What is the stability of these systems? To walk you through one example um, for vector control, um, the state of the art, so now I'm going to the Heilmeier criteria, you can see. Um, the current state of the art here is environmental modification. This is you know, removing the habitat for mosquitoes to live in. It's spraying with insecticides. And more recently, it's sterile insect techniques. So you could irradiate a mosquito to make it sterile. Um, these mosquitoes tend not to be very fit. Um, so, or you could genetically engineer a mosquito to be sterile. Um, groups like Oxitec are, are releasing mosquitoes. Um, That's not a gene drive, but it's a, it's a sterile insect that when released, it survives for about two weeks. Um, and is, is sterile, so there's, there's no offspring. The paradigm shift here is the gene drive, of course. So this would theoretically be a way to, to release one or a few organisms to suppress entire populations. If we decide to use a tool like this that could eliminate mosquitoes that carry disease but also potentially um, make that species extinct, um, let's think about what development of safe genes tools would do to engineer the mosquito, drive this forward with the tools afforded by safe genes. We can build in that control, keep it local. We can halt the spread of an unwanted gene drive if it gets beyond a geographic area that, that we'd like to confine it to. And we can also restore a system back to baseline, making the smallest change possible. We don't want to have to follow back in with pesticides or something like this. Let's, let's restore that system back. Um, these are the teams that we're funding. Um, we have really a, a broad swath of academic researchers mostly, looking first at high throughput models. They give very short timelines for a DARPA program. Safety is only a four-year program, so there's only a very limited number of generations that we can have for something like a gene drive. So to look at a greater number of generations, we're including high throughput models. So these are FLY flies, yeast, and worms, and really using these really awesome liquid handling robots that allow um, continuous evolution of these systems to look at the different drive constructs to see which ones are the most robust over multiple generations, which ones do we have the best control over, and what are the components of evolution that really work to, to um, create resistances in these systems. We have four mosquito vectors that we're looking at that carry any number of diseases. And then finally, if we're successful, we'll create the first um, mammalian-based gene drive in a rodent. Um, these rodents are invasive species in many island type of environments, um, but they also um, carry some diseases like Lyme and plague. And uh, this, this last point, I'd, I'd really, people are kind of scratching their heads, like, why does the DOD care about invasive species? And it's, it, you know, biodiversity of any given environment actually protects 
the organisms in that environment from disease. Having that incredible biodiversity is, is really helpful on the national security perspective because less disease means more stable nations. Um, let's, here's just another tool in the toolbox that we can start to look at. There's multiple design drives, uh, gene drive designs. We can think about threshold independent. This means small release, large impact, or threshold dependent. This would be where you have to release many, many um, species to, to reach a given threshold. What these designs afford is if, if a wind sweeps in and, and brings your mosquito to the next valley, that it won't reinitiate a gene drive there. It would, it would keep it local. And then on the therapeutic side, there's two projects that we funded. Um, one is from George Church's lab, and he has a very ambitious goal of trying to reverse damage induced by ionizing radiation. So if you think about um, it from the national security perspective, the, um, we are often first responders to a radi radiation event. Um, you're, of course, familiar with, with Fukushima. In those cases, they, they sent in robots early on because they, they couldn't send individuals. Um, and it, because of the damage that would be caused to those individuals, how can we find the cells that have been damaged with the ionizing radiation and, and restore them back to a baseline state? Um, from the DNA, uh, from the reagent delivery perspective, this is very difficult. I have 32 trillion cells. How um, will this team get to each of those cells that's, that's been damaged? And so we'll, we'll see how George does. Um, for the, and for the um, Jennifer Dowden, we funded her to look at um, a really exciting application of RNA editors. So I've mostly talked about DNA editors to date. But this is looking at a virus. It could be an engineered virus. It could be a, a naturally occurring virus. In, in her case, she's looking at, at Zika and Ebola. Um, and if we think about our current countermeasures against these types of viruses, the traditional targets are, are surface protein. So our immune system sees the surface proteins on a virus and, and makes an antibody against it, and, and we can clear that out from our system. Um, if you can have access to that entire genome, you can start to look at sequences that are conserved um, across many different strains of viruses for the first time getting close to a universal neutralizing reagent, and that's really what Jennifer is trying to do. We, we talked about the digital to biological converter earlier. This is a way that you can start with only digital sequence of DNA that you know from a virus and create a countermeasure against it. And then finally, um, thinking about in the next four years of safe genes, we're going to be addressing some of these hard technical goals. These are the, the quantifiable. This is the data that leads to publications, that leads to new technologies and new companies, controllable gene editors, highly precise genome editing inhibitors of genome editing, um, and gene drives that we can maybe one day field. Um, and then also the soft questions. So what I've done in this program is made sure that we've set aside some funds for each team to have interactions with the regulatory bodies, with the community, with bioethicists to ask, you know, what level of safety is acceptable? How do we appropriately monitor gene editing? And, and who does the decision making in these types of technologies? In a way, I'm also providing some soft governance here. Um, there are no rules to the funding of gene drives. So in my call for proposals, I made up rules <laughs> that said, okay, you have to have at least this stringent level of safety before we'll even consider you for a proposal. Um, and this was done with, with conferring with, with many different um, experts, with the people that wrote the guidance on arthropod containment. You know, what, what is this? Is this, is this a BSL-3 level? Um, but if we decide that it's safe, and do we just go from BSL-3 to, to open release? I mean, that, that doesn't feel right somehow. 
Um, so, so really thinking about what does this look like going forward. We've also worked closely with the National Academies, and um, these two reports are accessible on the, the National Academies website for free. Um, you can download Gene Drys on the Horizon, which, which really sets a path forward that all of our performers are, are following of, of how you can safely and in a staged manner um, go after these technologies. And then human genome editing, thinking about if this is somewhere that we want to go, how do we move forward safely? What do we think about, about germline editing? And what do we think about enhancements? Um, and so that brings us to what's next. <laughs> so, and should we really go there? So I, I, I like some of the work of the, the futurist, Gerd Leonard, um, where he's made the statement that humanity change, will change more in the next 20 years than all of recent history. And I, I do think that we are on a trajectory um, towards this. On, on the downslope are some of the recent technologies that, that are, are making this possible. On the upslope, if, if you can see it, there's things like human 2.0, um, human-machine convergence. These are, these are things that are, are somewhere on the horizon that genome engineering and gene editing will be a part of. So how, how do we make sure that we can pursue this, this future in a safe manner? One trajectory, one possible trajectory, um, I'll tell you where we are right now with gene editing for humans. It's um, ex vivo cellular therapeutics. So this is taking cells out of an individual into the laboratory editing them for some new function, whether it's um, engineering a, a T cell to attack cancer back in the body, but you can develop and, and QC all of those reagents in the laboratory before putting them back in the individual. The next near future is in vivo therapeutics. There's already FDA approvals to start to address some of these inherited genetic diseases um, from the eyes, liver, lungs, blood, skin, GI tract, um, you name it, in theory, there should be some solution that's afforded by genome editing that, that many will start to pursue. In each of these cases, this is taking an individual who is in a, in a diminished, unhealthy state and bringing them back to a baseline healthy state. What, do we go beyond that? What's next? What about enhancing that baseline state? So there's defensive enhancement, green guy with a shield. And so he, <laughs> this individual, um, we do this already, actually. Think about vaccination. So when you're vaccinated, you actually are introduced to a change that is lifelong lasting that protects you from disease. This is an enhancement that, that most individuals are, are accepting of and, and even find it, it honorable and, and, and a must. We require, if, if our children go to school, that they must be vaccinated. There's other enhancements that would be maybe offensive, um, enhancements performance, enhancement in cognitive state. Um, do we go there? What does that look like? What's the decision-making process to get us there? And then finally, an entirely new baseline state. So this is where germline editing um, comes in and individuals in the near future, we, are, we already have demonstrated that it is possible, but you know, wh how, what type of future does this look like where there will be edited individuals, unedited individuals who has access to those technologies? And um, you know, this isn't something that, that just happens on its own. This, this enhancement as adaptation occurs through evolution. And I think this is, this is a great graphic from this, this paper here where um, they've identified genes in, in humans that um, where uh, these are enhancements that make an individual well adapted to high altitude or cold temperatures or lactose metabolism. 
Anything that's not highlighted with a square is, is are actual mutations in those genes that increase the activity. But those with the, the blue squares, these are these are just gene dose, meaning that if you if you just increase the level of expression of that gene, you can start to achieve better lactose metabolism, better adaptation to high altitude. Um, we use drugs now to adjust to many of these types of scenarios. Um, but in the future, will there be a question where we ask, you know, what, what genes are you on? What are, what are you enhanced with? <laughs> Who am I talking to? And, and you know, how do I know where, where, do, you, where do you stay in this, in this um, level of enhancement? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's evolution really on, on steroids now in our control. And so one potential intermediate solution if we don't want to go and, and actually change our genomes is transient and reversible gene modulation for humans. So again, DNA editing, we're, we're taking an editor, cutting the DNA. This is a permanent change. We could also modify the outputs of our genome um, at the RNA level. So the central dogma in biology is DNA makes RNA, makes protein. So can we interact at the RNA level in a transient way that once the editor is removed, that, that baseline level of expression is restored. Um, there's an incredible paper last week from a group at the Broad Institute that actually is making edits at the RNA level. Um, I, I work in a military organization, and somebody was like, everybody's excited about this paper. Can you explain it to me in a way that I can understand? And I'm like, OK, it's like jumping out of a plane without your parachute. And then someone intercepts you on the way down, put your parachute on, and you land safely. And, and it's really, it's like, you know, here's a, a gene set loose, and you can correct it along the way so that when it lands, you, you have the healthy state of this, of this end gene. So this is one way to transiently modify your gene's activity. But then, of, of course, for the aficionados in the room, there's CRISPR-A and CRISPR-I type approaches where you have an activator. You, you eliminate the ability of a gene editor to actually cut DNA, but it can still go and find its place in the genome where it needs to go, and you fuse that to something that um, is a transcriptional activator to turn on gene expression or repress gene expression. You can do so um, in the short term or, or also make changes that are long-lasting, even hundreds of days. So would this be a possible path forward? And if we want to do it, um, you know, what does this look like? Well. What we can think about is in, in the context of druggable targets. So we, we, if, we, if we take a drug, we go after this gene network, we get our, our desired effect, but there's many off-target effects, and this is why there's toxicities and we're sick. But if you have a precision DNA modulator, like the one I've just described, you can really go in and just have your desired effect without those off-target chemically-induced side effects. This might be something that's, that's really an interesting path to pursue from the pharmaceutical perspective. In the near term, this is already, there's literature starting to accumulate on this topic. Um, for the mitigation of Huntington's disease, this has been done at the modulation level of the gene and at the RNA level. For flu, so there's, there hasn't been a lot of new insights to the flu lately, except in, in this case, a team overexpressed genes that altered the sugar structure on the surface of cells so that the flu could no longer invade cells. So they went from about 100% infection efficiency with influenza down to, um, I think it was 3% in the paper. This hasn't been done in vivo yet, but you're starting to get to a point where you know maybe I don't want to knock down expression of receptors on my cell surface lifelong. This could have damaging effects. But if I know I'm going to be exposed to something, it's flu season, I'm getting on a plane, maybe I want to knock that down for the next, for the red-eye flight I have tonight. Um, and then in the future, what about entire gene networks? We can start to multiplex um, several genes at once and, and knock out or knock in entire pathways. 
how are we going to do this? So this is something that I'm, uh, technologies I'm interested in developing. Um, inherently, they're safer. They're not going to make permanent modifications to the DNA. But first, we need to identify what are those targets that we're going to modulate. If we want to protect against the next flu or the next infection, where, what are those targets? I'm sorry. Um, getting to the tools to modulate those genes. Are they repressors? Are they activators? Is it a multiplexed approach? And then finally, formulations to deliver those tools. If I'm going to alter the cellular receptors on the surface, I want to make sure I'm doing that only in my lungs and you know, not on my skin or somewhere where it's not going to be relevant. So, so those, that, the delivery formulation is, is really one of the most challenging aspects of biology right now, getting these tools where they need to go. Um, and we're doing this in the context where we're talking with um, third pan panel experts and bioethicists, not only the folks at the National Academies, but beyond thinking about, you know, okay, this is a defensive enhancement. How do we feel about that? How can we have conversations to understand if this is a place that we want to go? Um, acceptance for genome editing for uh, somatic therapies and germline therapies is um, growing. Not quite there yet for um, germline and somatic enhancements. Um, I think this sort of is grouping the offensive and defensive enhancements together, but um, really we're solidly on the defensive side. Um, and, and just a, a note about where this is going. So, so just last week, the World Anti-Doping Agency um, banned all gene editing in sport. Not really qualifying what that means, but <laughs> it's clear, um, you know, okay, you, you, you could enhance EPO production. There's many things that, that you could do to enhance... Um, physical performance, and um, you know, how are they going to monitor this? If you're if you're increasing the dosage of of a gene, I just I don't know if they'll be looking for the tool or, or what in these contexts. So I'll be curious to follow um, where that's going. And just to close out, we started with the ARPANET, and we'll we'll end with um, a quote from Licklider, who was the program manager under the ARPANET. Um, it, he had this you know, vision at the beginning, understanding the impact that the ARPANET will have. And he said, to, will to be online be a privilege or a right? And it's important to think about genome editing technologies as, as we change our world going forward. We don't want it to be a situation where there will be a select few that have access to these technologies. How do we push the conversation out to the, the greatest um, group possible to, to weigh in on where we want to go? With that, I thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> All right, deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> I talk really fast, sorry. <laughs> that was fabulous, thank you. Um, say a little bit about iGEM. We had a talk uh, maybe two years ago from Drew Endy about the sort of iGEM revolution, and uh, you've been involved in that as a judge, I think. Mm -hmm. That's uh, right. Say what iGEM is and how you think it relates to what you've been talking about. Sure. So um, IDEM is the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition. I think it's been around for about 10 years now, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, Even give more her that, it yeah. more than that. Um, and the idea is, is uh, it's a summer lab project for students at the undergraduate graduate level at universities mm -hmm. to um, have an idea about synthetic biology and, and make it a reality over this, this short um, period of time. They have access to what are called biobricks. These are the, the building blocks, the genes that can be used to sort of start their designs, but they can build upon these designs. Um, but I, I think one of the things I, I really like about iGEM is 
there um, two things actually. So, so one is each and every project has a, a what's called human practices, and so this is hmm. thinking about safety in the context of those projects. So, so each, when the team comes together, they this is right at the beginning how they're approaching what they do. That's right. Yep. They 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 put out a plan to how they're going to address safety in mm -hmm. these contexts, and they they wow. also engage with their local communities. Um, and that's, that's part of the entire project, and they get scored on that. Um, interestingly, iGEM, sometimes the safety requirements of the iGEM competition are more stringent than the requirements of the countries where the individuals are coming from to compete. Where do they come from? Um, the all over the world. I, I, don't, I, I think that if there's a country, you name it, they're, they're participating in iGEM. Wow. Um, and uh, so, so that's actually, I think, been a, a great way to establish norms in synthetic biology and have those students take them back to their, to their home countries. Related to that is a question from Jen of, can you describe the international conversation in gene editing safety? So iGEM is clearly part of that. What's sort of the graduate, <laughs> postgraduate <laughs> yeah. version of Sure. So um, I, I was actually just two weeks ago in Germany, the Volkswagen um, Stiftung funds um, conversations about uh, many topics, including um, genome editing and security implications. So there was representatives from the Department of Defense, from the State Department, um, and elsewhere within uh, from the United States, but from countries all over the world. They they brought students and individuals together to to talk about um, gene editing and and what that means. Um, and it was actually a really interesting conversation. I think it was um, the first conversation to get to know each other and get comfortable with, with how we think about these technologies. So, so some countries are pretty bullish um, using these technologies. Um, I, I, GMOs are a great example, right? The US, mm. like, go GMO. And then um, Europe is not. Mm -hmm. And um, although I, I did visit a, a research lab in Europe that was developing GMOs for other countries outside of Europe. So, um, and it, it's an interesting point, and I, I, it sort of boggled my mind. I'm like, how could you be developing GMO plants and you don't use them in Europe? And, and the, the, this person um, who relayed this to me said, we didn't have the conversation with the public at the time for developing the GMOs. So the, the researchers in, in, in Germany and elsewhere in Europe um, were pursuing these technologies, but but um, those in the the public didn't have a say, and so so there's a dichotomy there now. So how does the public have a say angle on this? And one of the people you're funding is Kevin Espeld, I think, mm -hmm. who's hard over for basically asking public permission before you even do the research and things like that. What's your perspective on that level of transparency and permission seeking? So, um, from the safe genes perspective, um, I, we're a, we want to be as transparent as possible. Where we've provided funding for each of our teams to make sure that they can have those conversations um, publicly. We want them to publish all the research. We're requiring them to share their data. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that with that transparency, there's a responsibility to um, be there to translate the information that you provide to the public. So, just a, a data dump of sequence on the public isn't gonna do much good, but you know, being able to, to confer with them and say this is what this information means and, and why it's important and be there to answer questions I think is going to be critical. Well, surely there's some kind of a lag or something here. I mean, it's taken a while for people to get sort of, you know, they went through the bits and bytes, the level of understanding what programming digitally is about. And uh, genetic, are way more complex and strange and personal than uh, you know some nice safe machine across the room. 
is there a, and, and it sounds like the, the, young, the many young teams that are involved in IGM are sort of one way of, of them engaging this as practitioners, not mm -hmm. just as somebody hearing about it and worrying about it. But there are a lot of people hearing about it and worrying about it. And for whom genetics has a uh, past of uh, you know, the bad seed and these various things that we worry about genetics, is there going to be just a lack of people saying, look, it's genetics, and uh, I don't understand it, therefore don't do it? And, mm -hmm. or, and then how do you overcome that? Because the understanding itself is difficult. Mm -hmm. And how deep do you have to go? Do you really have to understand the mechanism of CRISPR-Cas9? Right. Which you know, I promote uh, avidly, and I have, frankly, I could not mm -hmm. explain it. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have a perfect answer to your question, mm -hmm. but, I, but I do think it, it is important yeah. to engage the communities. Um, and I, I try to not be at that. We just have to educate them more so they understand. And, and you know, I, I don't think that's, that's really, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's listening in both directions. And um, so, so we, we have um, a gentleman, Jason Delborn. So he's, he's from NCSU, funded under safety. And so I'm just going to do a demo of what he does. I'll give me your hand, Stuart. Mm -hmm. so, so we're engaging now. And, and part of this engagement means that we can sway each other. So you may have mm -hmm. an opinion, I have an opinion, but we're both movable in mm -hmm. this conversation. And it, I, I love that demonstration that Jason has mm -hmm. because if, if you're going to engage with the public, do it in a way that's meaningful, that you're both vulnerable and that, that, that there is some movement there. You may not completely understand each other or where you're coming from, but, but you're open to, to that movement. Well, DARPA itself is a very American national government organization. Do you guys sort of have your own outreach to other countries? How does that work? Do you, do you engage uh, other countries yeah. in so, research? So, so we do. Um, we have delegates from other companies, uh, companies countries come and, and visit DARPA to, to learn about the organization and what we do. We sometimes do that at the office level. So I'm in the biological technologies office. Um, so, so we've engaged with, with counterparts in, in the UK and Japan recently are some examples mm -hmm. I can think of. Um, and other other offices do so as well, but of, of course we are a national security agency. But, but you know we have allies across the world that we work with. Yeah, I was just uh, with uh, with Ryan in Australia at CSIRO, which is their mm -hmm. government uh, research organization. They got some of what, the money that you guys just now put That's out right. for yep. research on. Is it gene drive they're working on or something else? Yep. So so they're they're looking at um, some of the environmental assessment and risk mm -hmm. assessment for for the technologies um, CSIRO. So this is with the mammalian gene drives. Mm -hmm. We also fund groups from the UK on some of the mosquito work. So so a group at um, Imperial College and a group in the Purebright Institute. I heard the amount that's going to this current sort of tranche of research is 65 million. Is that's that right. right. More coming later, or how does that work? Uh, no, well, not from DARPA. So mm -hmm. uh, the, the key of DARPA is we, we, um, we make that early investment to show, uh, demonstrate that something is actually possible. And early on, we try to line up those advanced developers who can pick up our technologies, whether they're hmm. a company or another government entity, um, to, to develop that further. A couple questions here relating to basically digital questions. Um, Signu Udenberg, it looks like, says, um, speaking of designing safety at the beginning, Eric Schmidt gave an interview where he said if they thought about safety at the early stages of the internet, it would never have been developed. So is uh, you know, safety uh, potentially a strangling thing that happens? 
Um, I, I personally don't don't think so. An analogy that that I like to use is um, if you if you think about your car, you know, you don't have your brakes in your car, so so you can go slow. You have the brakes, so you can go very fast, get where you need to go. But if and when you should need to stop, you have the power to do so. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think we need that personally for for gene editing. And I, I do see this as a way to accelerate um, bringing these technologies to market. I can imagine if it's done in a way which people really get, it, it also accelerates the, the sort of public permission, the social license to proceed with these things. People have some confidence that it is moving ahead uh, safely. We'll see. Um, I, I think we, we've learned from biological systems, too. If we build a system and optimize it and then try to retrofit safety into that system, it breaks the system. And so um, it's really critical to have safety as a design feature early on. Um, there, there's a great paper by, by Jim Collins where um, he developed these kill switches. So he mm-hmm. had this E. coli that's dividing, added a kill switch. It'll kill the bacteria um, really for the first generation or two. It works great. Mm-hmm. But if you monitor those systems over many days, um, evolution kind mm-hmm. of, you know, there's no greater, greater pressure you can put on an evolutionary, mm-hmm. on a system than to kill it, right? So it's going to try to evolve around that. And so, um, if, but if we can build that in from the beginning, would those systems look differently? I, I don't know, but we're, we're trying to establish that as part of safety and um, another digital-related question from Chris, either A or H. Can you speak to the efforts, if any, to combine artificial intelligence, machine learning, and so on, with gene editing? Is that something which is enhancing all of the you know, trait um, analysis, things like that? Is mm-hmm. that helping? So part of what I'm interested in, in pursuing um, in, in future efforts would be looking at um, if, if we want to identify gene targets that we could potentially modulate, there could be some information that, that we learn um, in terms of, of targeting those genes, um, mm-hmm. that AI could be supportive. Um, and in the Living Foundries project that I mentioned, we, we do apply AI there um, through several of our teams to, to search the genetic space, sequence space that's out there to look for new enzymes that can um, catalyze mm-hmm. reactions to create... Um, new molecules that are that are of interest. So it's applied today. I'm not, not sure the exact um, application that, that you mean here. So I think it's coming together. It's, it's mm-hmm. not quite there yet, but, but I, that will, I think, be an increasing part of it going forward. The whole genetic universe is such a sort of data vast domain that one can imagine one would like every possible help you could get to be able to identify things you care for, about. For, I think thinking about human gene editing too, um, it, when we think about AI, so full disclosure, I'm not an AI expert, so what I say right now may not be right. But um, if, what I understand is there's, there's sort of, you ask the system a question, a little bit of a black box, you get an answer out at the, the back end, and it's a mm-hmm. probabilistic answer. But, but how, it, it, how the AI system reaches that answer, we're, we're not quite sure of. And DARPA now is trying to, um, we have a program called Explainable AI to say, okay, if we get to an answer. Explainable AI. Explainable AI. So how do we get to that answer? And, and most importantly, when the answer is wrong, how do we figure out how the system got it wrong? And if, if you think about that context for gene editing, if we want to use these tools, mm-hmm. AI tools, to identify targets for, for disease, if we get something wrong and it, it causes maybe a worse state than the mm-hmm. original disease that we're trying to correct, we want to be able to go back in that system and understand you know, what, what did we do wrong when we, when we allowed the AI to design that system. 
Explainable AI is pretty interesting because one of the things that's been emerging from some of these just sort of learning from the system systems that are out there is that they develop algorithms that are so hidden in the code, we don't know what they are. Right. And exactly. this is, a, you're trying to make it so that we do know what they are. Right, exactly. Well, I'm not, somebody else is. <laughs> well, that raises, so how many uh, program managers are at DARPA right now? It's a pretty lean organization. There's about 100 of us. 100? Is that a lot? <laughs> and do you characters interrelate with each other? So if you have a potential you know, application of AI, is there an AI program manager, you would say, mm -hmm. would you look at this situation and help me out, or how does that work? Absolutely. So, um, you know, we, as, as everybody is, we're... we're we have a full day, but we always try to talk with people on other floors. The way DARPA's organized at each floor is kind of a technical office. And so um, I do talk with folks in the um, I2O office, so Information Innovation office, um, about using the tools of, um, of, of AI and actually even just a data commons for the safety community. This is where they're going to be putting mm -hmm. their data not only to share across among the, the safety teams, but to have other people working um, as modelers in areas that maybe have nothing to do with biology to look at the data set and say, are there things that we can learn from the data that's being accumulated over, over many generations hmm. um, you know, that there may be some unique insights. So, so I think a lot of the really exciting innovation at DARPA comes when multiple disciplines come together um, and, and do great things. Hot stuff. Uh, <laughs> Clayton asks, what is CRISPR's potential role in the development of proliferation of biological weapons? And is it already too late? Our, you know, um, hmm. National Security, DARPA, uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, um, presumably the worry about bioweapons is gotta be in there. Is CRISPR a potential significant tool for bioweapons? So I, it is another tool in the toolkit, mm -hmm. certainly. I gave you the example of the horsepox virus. So, mm -hmm. so there's a real tangible example of, of some of these tools, not specifically CRISPR in that mm -hmm. case, but um, new genome tools making those possible. So I, I think that, yes, it's, it will play a role. It's going to be um, you know, pushing these technologies out. I hate to speculate. I always get really uncomfortable mm -hmm. um, speculating. I don't want to speculate, but uh, you know, I, I think this is a place where you can look to science fiction and and some of the the books that have been actually been published recently on on the topic um, mm -hmm. come forward with with really um, frightening scenarios about. Um, where you could do things like I could commit a crime, but I could use CRISPR to put my, my CODIS, my, my STR. You know, what the FBI uses is just kind of sniffs to, to, to say, okay, here's, here's these repeats that are unique to Renee. I can CRISPR those onto you, so now you're responsible for the crime, Stuart. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know how near-term that is, but these mm -hmm. are some of the, the, the fantastical scenarios that, you know, may become a reality. So part of this must be monitoring. Um, genes are very small, and they're hidden in a very thick bush of other things, which are genes and not genes and so on. So um, somebody deployed a thing that one might consider a direct or indirect bioweapon, or one of the things that you care about did get, in a sense, loose in a way that was not intended. It was supposed to be self-limiting, and it's not self-limiting. Are there genetic level ways to detect that kind of problem? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't think those exist right now. So okay. you could monitor for the tool, for the actual editor itself. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but that's probably going to be short-lived. So it's, mm -hmm. if it's going to, to introduce mm -hmm. an edit into your genome, it'll be there until it turns over that substrate, and then it'll be gone. So you have to catch it in that window of opportunity. Um, there's another ARPA agency, so IARPA, that's mm -hmm. developing a program specifically mm -hmm. to look at can you monitor and look for signatures of engineering, whether it's CRISPR Cas or, or you know, whatever the next editor coming down the pipeline is, can we look at a sequence and know if it's been manipulated? Um, but those those don't exist today. It's like the yet. ones that are looking at photographs to tell if they've been manipulated and things like mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. IARPA is intelligence organizing. Mm -hmm. um, of course, this question there will always be a version of Bob. Kopek, it looks like, says, how long before some high school student creates a unicorn as a science fair project? Oh, that's awesome. I'm sure that my, my daughter wants to be Probably um, a small that, unicorn. That you might, my pony. Well, I don't, we're doing the reverse. So, so I know companies are developing hornless cattle now. Mm -hmm. um, so, so maybe we, they need to reverse engineer <laughs> those systems. Um, or just remove one of the horns. <laughs> You know why hornless cattle, right? I mean, this is something we're evoking at Revive and Restore because um, I'll say a little about it. Uh, cattle hurt each other with their horns, and so uh, the people who are caring for cattle uh, dehorn them, and it's painful for them. There's a serious wel animal welfare issue here. And so it turns out there's a relatively simple gene edit to, uh, which already occurs in some cattle, they don't have horns, use that in other cattle. That, now, they don't have horns, and they don't hurt each other. Mm -hmm. um, that's the hornless cattle thing that's coming on. It's, uh, it looks good. Um, the cows look a little strange. They apparently <laughs> get used to it, and they're not hurting each other, and the animal welfare people should be cheering, and I hope are. <laughs> but it's the kind of thing that you know, we're, we're seeing here. Um, can I tell you a story since Go you brought ahead. up animal welfare? Mm -hmm. So, so DARPA uh, just recently got a letter from PETA uh -huh. commending us, believe it or not, on a, a program called the Microphysiological Systems Program. So MPS, this is um, it's essentially an on-a-chip program, so organs on a chip to recapitulate what an animal model might look like and, and behave like so you can, you can do all the experimentation on that chip and not actually have to sacrifice an animal. Um, so, so PETA sent us a letter of commendation on that program. PETA is interesting. You know, PETA come out, came out strong in terms of uh, basically grown, bat-grown meat and uh, impossible burgers and things like that. Um, and I, I agree. I, I think anything that is reducing animal suffering and is uh, reducing animal agriculture impact in the landscape is a good thing. Um, Wayne asks, what unexpected risks have developed in your current projects? Um, and generally not just unexpected risks, but what are the surprises so far? It's research, so you're supposed to be surprised. What's turned up? Um, so something that's happened in, in my projects over the, the past two years is um, I, I used to hear from individuals you know, so where's your progress? And they'll say, well, we're, we're cloning this right now, so we're busy in the lab making this happen. And that's changed to, well, we're waiting for the DNA to arrive. Um, so nobody clones anything anymore. And that's, I've, I've been surprised at, at how quickly this has, has become the, the reality. Everybody orders their, their DNA from, from a third party. <laughs> and what, uh, Kids these say days. a little more about that, because it's sort of, <laughs> you know, these, these simplistic bio-bricks for, uh, for microbes that iGEM was doing, mm -hmm. it's, it's gone beyond that, it sounds like. 
Or is it right, yeah. So, um, you know, people can, uh, for the Living Foundries program is a, is a great example. So um, we challenge the teams to create molecules of interest. Sometimes they have to stitch together mm -hmm. maybe 10, 20 enzymes um, to, to catalyze a, a reaction across these multiple steps. And so they'll order each of those genes from a DNA synthesis company, and then they can assemble those in-house in into these, these long stretches of DNA. Um, and they don't really need to, to do the cloning as they, they used to do manually, you know, amplify pieces of DNA, stitch them together. They can, they can just order those pieces now. So that, that's been... Is it expensive? Um, so from a funder's perspective, I, I do find it to be one of the most expensive components um, on mm. our projects. Is that one of those but, areas uh, but, where the... But in the grand scheme of things, yeah. The, the cost is going the down, cost down, is, down. is going down. Uh, you mentioned molecules of interest. <laughs> mm -hmm. What are molecules of interest? Okay. So, sorry. Uh, so, from, from the, the DOD perspective, these can be anything from a small molecule, a drug, to an adhesive, a coating, new materials, epoxies, hardeners, um, really, you name it, and we want to be able to access that, that chemical space. So, mm -hmm. um, as, a, as a country, actually, not, not just the DOD, you know, there's many things that we source... Um, either that are very costly because we may extract them from biological systems or mm. we have to source them um, internationally. They're not available in the United States. And so how do we bring those capabilities here that are cost-effective and, and produced domestically? I think there's a lot of Zymergen people in the house mm. here, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> doing this as, as part of that, of that project. And I'll say of the 1,000 molecules, we want them, the three teams collectively, to produce. They've made 551. So it's working. <laughs> and what makes them a bit, so are, they're not randomly making molecules, they're making molecules that are somewhat targeted or somewhat uh, adjustments to already known molecules or what? So, so there's, there's three, to get the specific about how the contracts were set up, there's three levels. Um, some are, uh, the, the first level of molecule are things that have been made by biology already, but making them, them better and more cost-effective. So those mm -hmm. are, you see the low-hanging fruit. Like, there's a pathway there. They know, they know how to do it in theory, but make it better. Um, the second category are, are things that um, there, there are enzymes that exist in nature that should theoretically be possible to make, but they need to be stitched together into a single organism to do that. And then there's the um, third category, which are just things that have never been made by biology before. And so these are, these are very challenging to engineer. This is, um, we've had a, one performer recently, our grantees we call performers, say, um, I've, I've run out of, of database. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Performer or go away. Um, <laughs> sort of. Um, but, but yeah, so they, they, they look at um, really metagenomics, you know, enzymes from, from the, the, you know, from deep thermal vents in the ocean to high peaks um, to, to look at the enzymes that are present in these organisms to stitch them together to catalyze well, new reactions. Wow. Um, well, okay. Question on George Church's program, which I hadn't realized until you mentioned it, of uh, basically um, being able to correct radiological damage mm -hmm. to people. Since the major human impact of travel in space is the exposure to cosmic rays, which uh, shorten everybody's life basically by doing a lot of DNA damage from the mm -hmm. radiation, uh, is one potential product of this if it works. Um, people that are comfortable traveling in space without a whole lot of cladding. Mm -hmm. 
So I, you know, I don't think that any of these technologies would, would replace shielding or protective um, mm -hmm. equipment that would be required for a long-term space travel mission. But we, I, 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 you know, your, your point is well taken that we're, we're, we're pushing to, to travel to Mars or, or mm -hmm. the moon or elsewhere. And um, I don't think we're keeping pace with the development of those, you know, the hardware and technology. We're not keeping pace with the development of, of you know, really protections for the, the human element that, that will be there. Are there ways that we can um, protect those future space travelers from radiation damage, reverse that radiation damage? Protect from would be really nice. Um, I raised a question with you earlier, which is um, one of the things going on, as you may know, in climate change and geoengineering is the desire to be able to capture carbon from the atmosphere, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and fix it in a way that it doesn't keep cycling back. And uh, there are some organisms in the oceans which do that. Uh, certain phytoplankton do it, for example. They don't do it as much as we would like in order to get you know, back down below 400 parts per million. So one could imagine engineering some microbes which are comfortable in the ocean and can proliferate widely that are extra special good at um, basically collecting carbon dioxide probably putting in some kind of shell or something like that. When the organism dies, the shell goes to the bottom and is geologically gone mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, is that doable? Is, is that okay? <laughs> so, so you know, my uh, I, I don't know. I'd love to see a, you know a project plan that looks at that. But if, if we think about you could make it happen. The, uh, wait, good. <laughs> um, so number five of the Heilmeier Catechism. What are the risks? Um, mm -hmm. You know, w one of the things would be what if what if that system you just described um, continues in an uncontrolled way, so that we not only fix carbon, but then we start to sequester carbon. We move into the next ice age, um, you know. <laughs> and they're in the ocean, so there's a lot of them out there. Um, right. If you build in safety from the beginning, maybe so, it becomes viable. Yeah, if you, how would you build in, for a system like that, which you're basically releasing into the wild, and most of these things mm -hmm. we're talking about uh, are ecosystem level, like rodents in the wild, like Lyme disease carrying white-footed mice mm -hmm. in the wild and so on. What are ways to localize um, and potentially reverse, say, gene drive applications of getting uh, deleterious genes in the case of, of uh, animals you're trying to reduce or extinct? What are the, the methods now of modulating that? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know that they exist yet. We're trying to establish those in mm -hmm. part under the, the safety program. Um, and it, it really, the, the best solutions I've seen so far are, are reversal drives. So, so mm. if you if you drive a trait that becomes <laughs> which the FDA won't let you do. Right, you're right, already fucked yeah. up. You don't get well, the fuck up again. I'm right, gonna... right, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, there I, I don't know what what can keep keep mm. pace with that. And I, you know, welcome with some concepts of, of of how we can address that. But well, you mentioned generation counting that a thing mm -hmm. might sort yep. of only apply for so many generations, sure. and then it either stops or poops right. out or something. Yep. Uh, how does that part work? Sure. So, so some of those are, are self-eliminating, where um, you can you can use a genetic trick to flip a gene every mm -hmm. through every um, cycle of reproduction that a promoter is turned on in the germline. It, it flips the gene, and you can insert um, any number of, of flips there. You can put ten flips, and that would be a, a, a ten generation counter, mm -hmm. for example. So it's 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 a physical and permanent change in that in that genome um, to maintain that state. 
this is one way you can do it. You could mm -hmm. also have um, those systems become self-extracting, uh -huh. where you can have um, uh, there's there's a multitude of gene editors. There's 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 CAS, there's CPS, CPF, um, and you can have one target the other to self-eliminate. Would be another mm -hmm. example. So you've been at this how long now at, at DARPA? Um, almost two years. What have you learned so far? Kevin Kelly puts the question, what have you changed your mind about recently after working on this? Um, what have I, what has my changed my mind about working on this? Um, you know, I, I, I definitely feel more confident that, um, I was like, is anybody going to think this is a, a good idea? And hmm. the, the more I learn about the impacts that these technologies are having. Say a little bit about what gave that kind of, is it, I think I heard that you sort of went in with this proposal and usually program managers have two or three proposals before they're taken seriously. Mm -hmm. But you were taken seriously right away. Well, I, I'd, I'd been around a mm. little while, so um, I, I sort of knew the, the, the DARPA way of thinking. Mm. And it was, you oh, know, right. genuinely, um, I, I really wanted to... This is going to sound cheesy, but I wanted to um, to serve my country in this way. Um, I I never served. Excuse in the... me, that's not cheesy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, but I I really felt um, you know this is something that I, that I wanted to do. I was I was excited at the innovation coming out of the United States, and I wanted to to protect that mm -hmm. um, so that we could pursue these technologies. So um, I was I was you know maybe one of the pleasant surprises is is you know there's actually a lot of other people that that want these technologies to move forward safely mm -hmm. <laughs> and. Uh, and maybe that's that's not surprising as it should be. Um, and you know, I, I I think I've been surprised um, at finding common ground in conversations about con conservation, hmm. for example, where maybe hmm. I, I hadn't um, in you know cosmic exploration. There's there's insights from new fields that um, you know I've 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 learned about over the the years that have just been really um, yeah I, I'm, I'm I'm leaving myself open to those conversations and. Um, you know, hope to continue to do so. So as an individual, I've, I've learned that, you know, having those open conversations has really been valuable to me. Thank you for the open conversation today <laughs> and it's going to keep expanding. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Derek. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. You can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.